0: What a delight and honor it is to be able to once again open God's Word with you. I am grateful to Pastor Baker for the invitation. And I commend the leadership at Calvary in having the entire team away and especially with their wives. And I can tell you for many years as our boys were growing. I would go off to a pastor's conference, and God would renew my heart, and I would come home, and it was uh, glorious, and I would come through the door, and Annette would be scraping the craft dinner off the wall, Uh, and so it's just a great, great thing that your pastor's wives are with your pastors. And as you look to Pastor Appreciation Month, I would encourage you particularly to let your pastor's wives know how important they are. You don't see them all that often up here uh, doing what your pastors do, but I can tell you from personal experience that I could only do what God's called me to do through the years because of the wife He gave me. And so you want to You want to encourage and honor pastors' wives. Scott said that uh, I'd been here from the cradle on up, which improved because at the early service he said I was born here, and, and, and I wasn't actually born here. And then he said something about uh, I would be the person that had heard the most Wally jokes. Well, my sister Elizabeth's here today, so she may have heard more than I've heard, but I can tell you this. with with grateful heart. The psychologist tells me that if I keep taking my medicine and keep seeing him, the the effects of those Wally jokes, by the time I'm 65, may, may have worn off just a bit. And if not, I will go and see Dr. Martin because I hear he's good at straightening people out. Let me ask you this morning, how's your vision? When's the last time you had your vision checked? I got these a few months ago, and I have to tell you how my vision is without these. My vision is such that every night I put them on the exact same place on the nightstand. If for some reason in the night they get knocked off or moved, all Annette hears is, dear, glasses, she comes from where she is because she knows right well that I won't find them. If I continued to preach without my glasses on, the vast majority of you could leave and I wouldn't know the difference. <laughs> it's so bad that when our boys were young, we had taken them over to Centennial Pool for a swim, and since you don't usually swim with your glasses on, I didn't swim with my glasses on, and we'd been swimming around for a while and I thought that we'd had enough, so. I swam up to a net and said, we had enough, do you want to go home? The woman said, tell me who you are and I'll let you know. <laughs> it's one thing when it's physical vision. How about spiritual vision? Pastors are asked, what's your vision? Leaders are asked, what's your vision? You may have a vision for your life, a vision for your family. I submit to you this morning that what is foundational for being the people that God has called us to be is that we have a crystal clear vision of the person of our God. When we have a crystal clear vision, vision of the person of our God, we discover this. It absolutely transforms our view of our circumstances. It transforms our view of ourselves. It'll transform our view of our service, and it will transform our view of our success. I invite you to take your Bibles with me, if you would, and turn to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. The background to the text is this, we are in Judah 740 B.C. Isaiah 6 starts with, in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was a godly king of Judah. He had reigned 52 years until his death. In fact, if you check it out in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, you will discover that economically, militarily, socially, a high point for Judah was when Uzziah was on the throne. When I say Judah, I remind you that after the death of Solomon and there came a division of the kingdom, and ten tribes in the north were referred to as Israel, and the two tribes in the south were referred to as Judah. And so we're in the south, and Uzziah, having been a godly king all these years, as this young man Isaiah is coming on to the picture as a prophet to Judah, he knows that this has happened. For late in Uzziah's life, 2 Chronicles 26 tells us, that when he was strong, he became proud. He took incense and wanted to burn incense, that which was not for him, it was for the priests. He is confronted about that. He doesn't repent. He becomes enraged. And the text tells us that leprosy broke out on him and he was leprous until the day he died. You say... What difference does that make? Let's put it back into the context. For for Isaiah, no doubt, from the time he was young, you look at this godly king. There are ungodly peoples all around us, but we have a godly king. He's a man that follows after the Lord, and as he's followed after the Lord, look how the Lord has blessed him Wow, and and it looks like God's calling me. God might have his hand upon my life. And man, if I could follow in a godly train of Uzziah, what a delight that would be. And Uzziah dies as a leper in disgrace. When Isaiah writes here at the beginning of chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, he didn't just put it there so that we would know it's 740. It's within the context, this was something that was devastating to all of Judah. And in that year, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. Take a look at what he says. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, and the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. When we have a clear vision of the person of God, it transforms our view of our circumstances because it reminds us of this, that there is a God in heaven who is absolutely in control, who remains on the throne, and whatever is taking place in my life, God did not wake up this morning and go, oops, he's never done that about you. Do you know that God has never thought about you? Glad you reminded me of him. I had almost forgotten her. From the throne of heaven today, God designs the path you walk. That transforms my view of my circumstance because that lets me know this. I am not in the hands, ultimately, of a dread disease. I am not left at the whim of the economy. I am not left with a family that I thought I could trust them. I thought I could count on them. I thought if all else failed, man, they would be there. A correct view of God Puts it in the context that they might not be, but he always is. I can trust him absolutely. The reason I can trust him absolutely is not primarily because he is sovereign even though he is. It's what he saw next in the vision. Seraphim, angels that really means burning ones. And it appears in the text that the burning ones had a particular desire and focus on the holiness of God. So as Isaiah's vision unfolds, He sees these angels in his vision of the temple and it's as if it's an antiphonal chant going back and forth, so much so that the place starts rocking. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And back, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And that went back and forth and back and forth. And they affirmed this, If you wanted to simply say holy, you would say holy in the original text. If you wanted to intensify it, then you would say holy, holy. If you wanted to bring it to its greatest intensity, then you said it three times, holy, holy, holy. If we take all the attributes of God, while we shouldn't really rank them, that which flows over all of God's attributes is this, his holiness. He is absolutely holy in his love. He is absolutely holy in his mercy. He's absolutely holy in his justice. And holiness is complete and utter moral excellence. That there is intrinsic in God that which is other because that's part of holiness that makes him completely and absolutely beyond us perfect that's why it transforms our view of our circumstances because if he was perfect but he wasn't in control you say well I'm, i'm glad he's perfect but but He's not in control. But here we have, he's in control. He's the sovereign one. And in his perfection, he rules and reigns. That changes our view of our circumstances, it changes our view of ourselves because as Isaiah catches this vision of the sovereign, perfect, holy God, notice his response, verse 5. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Fairly quickly, we would move to An acknowledgement I live among a people of unclean lips. Lord, I look around and yeah. People all around me. We can can do this thing of of judging one another if if we have a clear vision of God. Where we start is with me. The acknowledgement that it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. That rather than Judging how they're doing and then saying, well, I'm not doing too badly in that regard. I look in the face of a holy God and recognize that in light of who he is, I'm a man of unclean lips, that that I need to be cleansed today, that I need to live in light of God's holiness today. He ends with the most significant statement My eyes have seen the king. You need to link that back to verse 1. So in essence, Isaiah says this. In the year the king died, I saw the one who was really king. In the year the king died, I saw the one who's the transforming king. That was going to transform his life from then on. And we've discovered this, haven't we? Many of us, if not most of us here that when we have had a correct vision of God, we're transformed from the inside out. But bless God, he never leaves us simply at conviction. When we see him for who he is, our souls are convicted. And if we were left to our own designs, all we could ever do for ourselves is remain convicted. Look what God does. Verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. How is it possible for that seraph to have said, your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven? It's back in verse 6 he took a burning coal from off the altar. For us, that may seem strange. It wouldn't have seemed strange to Isaiah at all. Because within the temple, when you came to the first court, there was the offering, the burnt offering altar. And day after day, from the tabernacle through the temple, day after day, blood ran there. Blood and burning, blood and burning. So when he takes, the seraph takes the coal from off the altar, the reason that he can say that you're cleansed is because of this. There had been a blood sacrifice. For we know this, the text is clear, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So under the old covenant, as Isaiah sees this happening, there's been a blood sacrifice, and on that basis, the seraph can say, you're cleansed, you're forgiven for us when we're convicted by the Spirit of God. He doesn't leave us with conviction. Conviction is to push us Force us to Calvary. Force us to the Savior and recognize there that the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world shed his blood and while on the burnt offering, the sacrifice was day after day after day after day with the Lamb of God, that man was offered once for all time for the forgiveness of sins. Now, That leaves me with a transformed view of my circumstances because the Holy God is in control of my life. It transforms my view of myself because it takes me out of being. Huh. I'm satisfied with me. I've worked hard and I've made it to saying this, I am but a guilty sinner and Bless God, he took action on my behalf in order that I might be cleansed. Once I know what it is to be cleansed, then we discover that a correct vision of God transforms our view of our service. Take a look at the text. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? and who will go for us. Then I said, here am I, send me." We need to understand the force behind what Isaiah is saying there. Isaiah is not saying, Lord, here I am. I've got all my education, I've got all my experience. I was wondering when you were gonna get around to recognizing what a talented guy I am. And you've put the call out. And here I am. This week I got an email to remind me that next year will be the 40th anniversary of when I left this place to go to Cape and Ray Bible School in England. Every time I come back to this text, I am convicted about how absolutely arrogant, oh, I don't know how you put up with me. Went to... University went to Dallas Seminary and as as well said you can always tell a Dallas man but you can't tell him much and and then that was true and through a whole series of events God caused me to realize what's really going on in this text because it's not here am I send me The force of it is more like this. Lord, here am I. Would I do? Would I do? Could it be that the God of the universe who is complete in himself, who doesn't need anything, absolutely sovereign, absolutely holy, Lord, that that you could use me I would be so honored if you would use me in any way for your glory. Because if we don't have a correct view of God, then too often our view of our service can raise within us either pride on one hand, dissatisfaction on the other. I wasn't recognized. I do this ministry. Nobody ever sees it. Nobody ever appreciates me. I study to teach my Sunday school class. Half the kids aren't there. The other half talk through the whole thing. Lord, Oh, careful now. If in your service, in our service, we ever think about ourselves that we are doing a favor for someone else, we need to recognize that ultimately what I'm saying, Lord, is I'm doing you a favor. Isn't that abhorrent? I remember years ago when we were in Oakville and it had been a long Sunday and I was tired and I'd gone back to the office and sat in my office to work on some things and it came time to go home. Closed my office, walked out the hallway, the lights were on. I walked down the hallway and shut those off, and then I saw that the lights were on upstairs. And about that point, I was thinking like, well, I, I, I know we pay a custodian around here. And I flick those lights off, but then I see that there's lights further on. And then, ultimately, I got to the front door, everybody had gone home, and the front doors were unlocked. And by this time, I'm like readily steamed in the, hey, I shouldn't have to be doing this. Except that morning, in preaching, I had said to the congregation, if, if Jesus was physically present, sitting in the front row, what difference would it make? Now, I don't know when God's Holy Spirit hits you with a two-by-four, like right here, but, but it gets me a fair bit right here. I'm driving home. I pull over and cry. Because I knew this. If when I was in my office, the door had knocked and Jesus had opened it and said, Steve, before you go home, would, would, would you mind, for my sake, just like shut off the lights, lock the door. I know what i had done. I would have forgotten whatever there was on. Oh! And you know what I have to recognize? Every time, I'm involved in service. Every time you're involved in service, it's because Jesus is saying, would would you do this for me? The smallest thing, the largest thing. Jesus says, would you do this for me? Let me ask you this. Do you think he's ever forgotten one thing you've done in his name? Somebody here may have. Somebody that you thought would appreciate you, may have. But when we do it because we have a correct vision of God, here I am. What I do transforms our view of our service. but Finally, transforms our view of our success. Isaiah says, here am I, send me. Here's the commission, verse 9, and he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. God's commission to his man Isaiah was this. Go and preach, and they're not going to listen. Go and preach, they're not going to understand. Go, and you can preach your heart out, but they're not going to repent. I have to tell you, I have never heard that sermon preached at an induction service for a new pastor. It's always like, here we go, glorious things. For Isaiah... It was going to be outwardly, he was going to be an abject failure. He is going to be preaching God's message to God's people, and they're not going to change. Isaiah is a bright young man. He says, Lord, how long? And the answer for Isaiah was basically your entire ministry long, this is what you're going to face. You see, when we have a correct view of the person of our God, it changes our view of success. I am so delighted with the ministry here and that God has enlarged Calvary's borders and granted favor to her. I am delighted, on a personal level, the soccer program in the summer. My two eldest grandkids have been involved in it for the last two summers. Their other set of grandparents do not know the Lord Jesus but they're very committed to their grandkids and they come Wednesday night by Wednesday night and are involved in the program and they hear the message at the end of that program week after week. What a glorious outreach opportunity that you are using to reach this community. And I know that there are lots of others. Do you know that across our country today, the vast majority of churches are under 100 people? And sometimes those churches look at larger churches, larger situations, and think to themselves, well, what good is it? You know, man, there's these large places that have significant influence. What about us? I'm gonna tell you a story. I don't know if you know where Westport, Ontario is. If you do, then you're in the minority here this morning. But uh, Westport is a little burg that's 53 kilometers north of Kingston. The little church there is Olivet Baptist Church, a church that our family has attended virtually my entire life, long when we're on holidays. The pastor theres named' Bob Popma. Bob's been there for 18 years. A wonderful, loving guy. Bob's never going to pastor a large church. He's never going to speak at a conference. If he has a book published, it'll probably be because he had it self-published. But one Sunday a few years ago, I walked into a shop down the street from the church to get my fishing license. And the lady behind the counter said to me this, wow, you're about the best-dressed fisherman in town today. And I said, oh, just for church at the Baptist church. And she said, oh, that's where Bob is, isn't it? And I said, Yeah. She said, he's a really good guy. We're, We're glad he's in our town. This spring, the church decided to have an outreach across their town, particularly to seniors, which was simply this, hey, we'll, we will come and rake up everything in your lawn that's fallen in the wintertime, and we will get your beds ready for uh, your planting beds ready for the flowers, etc. He told me this summer that, uh, that at first there was some hesitation, but then, especially small town, people talk, 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 and they discovered this, wow, the Baptists are willing to come and do this, and they don't even want any money. Since when a Baptist like that? And they don't expect us to come to church. They, they just want to do this, and I'm glad to tell you that Bob Potma, faithful for 18 years, in that little place, I'm absolutely convinced is going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter the joy of thy Lord. And you may be here this morning thinking about your life, your family, your ministry, and thinking, ah, boy, it it hasn't amounted to much. No, no. You take a step back, and before God, you commit, whatever you've called me to, I will do. That's the standard for success. William Borden was born to a rich family in Chicago. Because of the family's wealth, Borden was able to travel. And he had traveled much, and during his travels, as a young boy, the Lord had laid on his heart world missions. He went to Yale University, was a part of the first and beginnings of the student missionary movement. And at the age of 23, he left, headed ultimately for China to work among Muslims, but he was going to Cairo, Egypt to study Arabic before he went on to China. Four months after he arrived in Cairo, He contracted cerebral meningitis and in a very few days he was in glory. 23 years old with a ton of family money behind him. And if we were going to look at that, we might say, listen, I think it would have been better if he had stayed home and funneled all these millions into world evangelism. Struck down at 23, four months, he doesn't even make it to the field. And when they opened Borden's Bible... Three lines. No reserve. No retreat. No regrets. Because William Borden had learned that success was all about a correct vision of God. And when God called him, his responsibility was to say, would I do? Would I do? And as your heart says that this morning, I trust that you're saying, Lord, once again, if you've never done it before for the first time, if you've done it before, once again, Lord, no reserve. Lord, as you've called me, no retreat. And especially for those of you who are younger, let me tell you, as the years go by, you definitely want no regrets. Would you make that kind of commitment today? To say, in light of who. Our God is. I gladly commit myself and my service to his will. Lord, today I say again, would I do? Would you pray with me? For your word, our Father, we give you thanks. For you to interact with us as the God of the universe, we marvel. We stand amazed at your grace extended through our Savior, the Lord Jesus. With a renewed vision of you today, our hearts are asking Oh, Lord, would we do. We tell you that we love you and we would be so honored to be used however you choose to extend your kingdom. We commit ourselves to that end. In the high and holy name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus, Amen.